Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 2021 Holiday Bonus Edition of the Horn Call Podcast. My name is James Bolden, Publications Editor for the International Horn Society, and I'm really excited to share this uh pre-recorded interview with you conducted by Dr. Jenna Gardner at Western Illinois University with Professor Gail Williams. Uh, Professor Williams is someone in the horn community who probably needs very little introduction. Um, Those of you who know her name, I'm sure are familiar with her work with the Chicago Symphony for many years and then her uh, legendary teaching career at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. She recently announced that she will be retiring from full-time teaching at Northwestern uh, after this year, and uh, I thought it would be a fitting tribute to her to share this interview with her that Dr. Gardner conducted, and my thanks to both uh, Dr. Gardner and Professor Williams for uh, very kindly doing this interview. It was at the 2019 Western Horn Festival held at Western Illinois University in Macomb. Uh, I think that's pretty much all the introduction I need to give. Uh, I think you're in for a treat. You're going to hear Professor Williams talk about her inspiration, some of her teaching philosophy, and much, much more. So I hope you enjoy. So this session is devoted to talking a little bit about horn pedagogy um, with our lovely guest artist with his years of teaching experience. So I have a few questions that um, I surveyed some horn players about that I'm going to ask, and then I'm going to open it up uh, for you all. Any questions that you might like to ask Professor Williams? So the first question is, can you tell us who were your mentors and how they have influenced your teaching? Um, I have to say that uh, mentors keep growing. You keep learning from everybody, and in your mentors, you keep adding to them. Um, I didn't study as a kid. I didn't have any horn lessons until I got to college. And so Mr. Covert, John Covert, was my first teacher, and he was by far my most important mentor because he told me, you know, this is... Oh, you don't do this, you do this. You think, oh, fine. I had no idea whether to do it, yes or no. But he was so influential in music making, in exposing me to solo repertoire, an etude repertoire. <clears throat> we never studied any excerpts until I basically got to Northwestern. Mainly because he wanted me to learn how to play the horn through etudes and solo repertoire. And so I would say he's probably my most influential mentor. And I still take criticism from him. I saw him not too long ago, and he had a few comments for me. Um, And then I came to Northwestern, and I studied with Frank Brauch. That's probably a name you don't know of very much. But he was a very influential person in the fact that he would just say, well, you might want to play it like this. And he would pick up his horn and your jaw would just floor up, go on the floor. You know, it's just a gorgeous, beautiful sound. Ease of playing. He had played first horn in the Chicago Symphony, first horn in the WGN Orchestra, and then second horn, and assistant horn, and fourth horn in the Chicago Symphony. Um, Mr. Clevenger, I studied with him. Um, 
And after I got in the Chicago Symphony, I have to say that before I got in the Chicago Symphony, I took many lessons with Arnold Jacobs. And he probably was the next mentor, I can say, that probably really influenced my um, approach to the instrument because he didn't care what size you were. He didn't care anything, but he wanted you to be efficient. And that, I think, is terribly, terribly important. <clears throat> One of the reasons I went to Chicago is um, because of this other mentor, and that was Bud Herseth. I heard on the famous Gabriella recording, these orchestras. And I was dating a trumpet player at the time, and we argued over who. And, and we kind of parted ways when I said, no, I'm going to Chicago, sorry. I want to hear that trumpet player play. So I was really fortunate. The very first Chicago Symphony concert I went to, he was playing a concerto. And, you know, one of these again. Um, very fortunate in, in my moving to Chicago. I got to play extra with a CSO fairly soon in, in May. And, you know, walking down the hallway, that long, skinny hallway, you're thinking, what the, what the heck am I doing here? You know, <laughs> you know, and I hear this buzz behind me. I thought, who the heck is that? And, of course, I peeked around, and, of course, who was it? Bud Herseth. He has the most efficient buzz you'd ever want to hear on the trumpet. And it would just go through. And it's not just loud, it's soft. It's, it was just so pure. So between all these other people, you start grabbing ideas. And that becomes, you know, where you go. And, you know, we lost a really important man the other day, uh, Sam Flafian. And he was a great, great pedagogue and a great mentor. You know, he, he probably influence us through his teachings some of the things that Jake used to say the same thing but he wrote it down and I think that's what's really important he wrote it down and we can all go and review those books all the time so do I have just a few minutes? No, I keep learning from everyone. I learn from Jenna I learn from my students you know, because they come from other places and they bring things in so I think it's really important to keep your eyes open and your door open for new ideas because that's how the world goes around. Um, can you share with us any advice that you might have for balancing playing, teaching, and real life? It's always in balance, isn't it? It sometimes gets really wacky um, depending on what you're doing. And it, it, it changes, and it's not going to be the same. It's just not going to be the same. When you're a student and you have a luxurious amount of time to practice, sometimes you waste it. And then you have a job and you have little kids and you realize you have a half an hour and you can't waste. You have to become a much better practicer and more efficient. Um, Balancing life is, is something that I think, I'm not sure there's a complete circle. I think sometimes it's always a flat side, <laughs> you know, even to this age. Because <clears throat> with my husband being retired, uh, I'm not. 
So he'll say to me after teaching all day, what are you going to do today? What are you going to do tonight? And I just kind of look at him like, like what I always do. I always go up in the attic and practice my horn. You know, and I do. That's, that's kind of what, that's what I have to do. After I teach all day long, and sometimes I can get a warm-up, and sometimes I don't get a warm-up because I've been in a meeting before my first lesson. I, then you have to kind of fix things, you know, and go back and do. I may, not, <clears throat> I may not be working on any new thing. I may just go back and do my Chantal book. I'll do a whole key. It's something I go to all the time. I just have to make sure I keep the basics up. And um, knowing what is in the next couple months, I know that I'll be driving out to Jackson Hole to play in an orchestra, which I haven't done very much of the year. So I have to get kind of into that kind of shape. So it's a, just, it's a balancing act of what's coming around the corner and what I have to do. So um, this is a comment. This actually came from Jeremiah. Not all great performers teach. Why do you enjoy teaching, and when was the moment you knew you wanted to teach? I, I did my music education degree. My mother was a music teacher, K through 12. I had my mom for 13 years. And uh, I, I wanted to be a phys ed major. That's teaching your kid how to do a somersault. It's the same thing as... I have, I'm very proud to say I have three grandchildren. They all can buzz. You know, my my daughter-in-law is like, she's spinning on everything, but she's not spinning on everything. She's buzzing. And it's just really an entertainment for me to see what they can do. So it's, what was I doing the other day? I was teaching them how to do a somersault. I didn't tell them. Their parents on their cushions. And then I got my horn out and my grandson was playing. So it's like I'm learning through their experiments so through my teaching, it's sort of I'm still learning, if that's a good enough answer. And the fact that I think teaching teaches me more about how to place it, things. And, and I think it just adds to what you're doing. Um, some people really feel like at this point of your life, you should be giving back. And I sort of feel a, a little bit of that too, that it's, it's time now that I, you know, uh, share from my experiences of playing to students and the traditions that went on. Um, how do you encourage students to pursue their career aspirations while being honest with them about the challenges of today's music industry? That's really hard. I will say this is a very hard question because if you know what's going on in Chicago right now, the Chicago Symphony's on strike. So you have this great orchestra uh, not working for four weeks and they got cut with their no health care, boom. So it's really hard to, you know, talk to your students about, you know, this is a great, and it is a great life. Playing music is a great life. Uh, I think that's why in a university setting, you had better be going and taking some of these other classes. Because you're going to need, and I, and I said this to my brass ensemble kids on Monday because of the strike. I said, yeah, I think it should be an assignment from everybody here to go over in that student union and meet someone new and invite them to your concert next, the next concert you have. 
because maybe they're going to become a doctor and they're going to support you in 10 years. Or a lawyer. Or go over to the journalism school and learn how to write. And go to the marketing school. Meet some of these people and learn how to market your brass quintet that you want to be in. And I think that's the advantage of being in a university setting. So you can take these opportunities to learn other things. Mm -hmm. um, how do you handle high stress passages or performances and how do you train your students to handle them? Well, I kind of did it a little bit with Molly in the master class. You know, instead of going, oh, you have to go, hmm. And it's that attitude of, did I practice it? Am I prepared to play that high passage? Instead of avoiding it or getting tension into your body. And the least amount of tension will help you play that passage. Um, so I do the same thing with my students. Um, I have an exercise ball. I make them sit on it. I have a little thing that I make them stand on and balance and imagine them playing something high. So if they have tension in their body, they fall off it. Um, I, think, I think teaching them how to, I encourage them to do any kind of, I know you did some yoga this morning, any kind of mental exercises. Um, I always have Robert Johnson, who plays in Lyric Opera, come because he does the meditation class. And anything you can add to what you're already doing, I think, I think is really necessary, especially in this very fast life. Well, and you mentioned Don Green earlier, and I know he's been a big influence. He's a huge as well. influence. I've read not only his books; I've done a lot of study with, you know, with his ideas. And on my board, I have the Seven Steps to Centering, and I. I some people say, oh, it doesn't really work for me. Well, then try something else. You have to be able to do something to shut off the, the chatter that's in your head and get into the music. And what you said today, of, you know, you were talking about your, um, your picture of the girls plucking the, the flower. Perfect. Perfect. Because I think you have to have that today to shut off the yak, 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 yak that's in, always in your brain. It's there. It's, and it's going to be there. So at this time, I'd like to open up some questions. Yes, Eric. When you have a new undergraduate student in your studio, where do you start with them? What's your process for figuring out what they need in their development? That's what's the fun part about teaching, is everybody's different. You know, and when the administration says, I want to see your curriculum and I want to see your syllabus, I said, well, there's 20 of them. Here, there you go. Because, they're all, because they are different, and that keeps you interested in that. And they all learn differently, and that's my job as a teacher, is to figure out how they learn and what they've done. So instead of giving, I, and I didn't used to do this, but I'm very much into doing, okay, what's your goal? What do you think you need? So I ask them what they need. Then I will tell them what I think they need. And many times it's the same thing. They're being honest, I'm being honest. But it's a short-term goal. It's maybe in a year you want to be able to do this. Okay, what are we going to do in these 10 weeks? And I just, we just started spring quarter. And so I've been doing that all week long. Writing notes of, okay, this person, yes. You want to work on your low register. I can't agree with you more. <laughs> you know. So how are we going to do that? And... 
And I think that having short-term goals is, is as important as long-term goals. So you can actually get to that. And it might be learning all your skills and on the F horn and the B flat horn, almost, you know, just for example. But it's, it's setting a goal and achieving it in a short-term process. Is there another question? Yes, sir. You obviously were very astute. I witnessed her playing the horn choir. They did it well. And then she sort of stood up there. Then, but you obviously were a very good student then. But what was it that you did? And there were a lot of good students that were college leaders there. What got you from the point of being a good student to the point where you became all of a sudden a young professional? Not too many years after that. With within 11 years of that date, you won the helmet in the International Horn College. I wasn't afraid of trying things. No one told me I couldn't do something. I come. I not only did not study until I got to college. I grew up on a dairy farm, and to go play the horn that was that was really easy. <laughs> you know, that was a lot easier than throwing bales all day long. And my father never said, "You can't do it because you're a girl." I never ever heard that. When he wanted something done, he'd say, get down there and do that, you know, okay. And you didn't ask why, you asked, how high do you want me to jump, you know. So, so it's, I think it was that kind of discipline from the farm life that I wasn't afraid to try. Um, I had some great role models when I was a freshman and sophomore and junior. And besides Mr. Covert, there were some grad students that I just adored. And I thought, boy, if Martha Glaze can practice on a Friday night, I guess I should be practicing on a Friday night. So I had that going as a freshman. And I, did, I like to practice. I get, you know, I think it goes back to being, I'm, I'm a lover of sports. I, I wanted to be a phys ed teacher, but it, you know, my mother twisted my arm half off. So I kind of approach it as a sport. And you have to practice. I mean, people are very talented, but it isn't talent that gets you where you are. It's the dedication and the practice. So how many forehands does Roger Federer still go out and hit every day? I mean, that's a, that's a pure example of that's dedication. He must love to practice. How many backhands? And so that's the same thing as how many scales, how many slurs, how, you know, what do you do every day to maintain it? And I think organizing time, because we're all busy, I think you still have to organize that part of your practice. Um, I had a lot to learn, you know. I, went to, I got to go to Tanglewood between my junior and senior year, and I had to do my student teaching, and all I wanted to do was practice. Ugh. Those kids, you know, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to go do my student teaching and know that 
I have to do all this practicing, but I really want, really want to play my horn. So I played my horn in all my students' lessons and just transposed. It was the best thing I could have done. Um, but my first summer of hearing that repertoire, I was just stunned. I had no idea what the orchestral repertoire that was out there. And to hear the Boston Symphony play three programs a week, my brain blasted open. So I was in the listening library as much as I could go. You know? And I think that's something that students I say every day and they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And you're not listening enough. How many recordings have you listened to this? And I don't mean go on Spotify and find the first one. Go dig. There's some really cool things on Spotify. There's some really old videos on YouTube that you can go listen to. Go see what other people are doing, not just the first thing you find. Mm -hmm. And I think exposing yourself to different... Um, I mean, I remember the first horn workshop that I went to in 1970. Wow. Yeah. That was really different. These Europeans were standing up and they were playing in the single B flat. What the heck is going on there? You know? <laughs> and... It, and I wish there was more diverse playing now. It's kind of, we're getting to be a little bit too much the same, I think. And I would love to hear a Russian horn player come in and play with that beautiful vibrato. And I go, ooh, that vibrato. No, just use it. You don't, you may not have to play with it, but you can, you can listen to his music. So being exposed to, to different ways, I think, has been the, one of the best things for me. But I think the dedication to sit there and, and fail. I'm not afraid to fail. And I think kids are afraid to fail today. I failed a lot. I took a lot of auditions. I failed. And people, uh, sure. I no, I said, I failed when I was this high. And I was showing my first Holstein calf. And boy, it, it could walk, it could stop, it put its feet perfect. It's like a dog you know, being trained. But it had a bad rump, so I got a yellow ribbon instead of a blue. I failed. You learn from that, and you just keep going on from your your you know, mistakes or your failures or something, and you go, okay, that's not going to happen again. That kind of... Yeah, yeah. Yes? There are a lot of music ed majors in here, I know, as well. What are some things you see that you would like band directors to do differently, either beginning band or high school, either with horn teaching or just music in general, what do you see coming in or in your um, <clears throat> in listening to auditions from people from all over the United States, I think the thing that gets me the most is the lack of use of good air. Period. End of sentence. If you're using good air, that your lips can work. But so many kids are coming in and they're so tight. And, and I don't know if it's the stress of life. I, I, don't, I don't really know. Or they're afraid they're going to make a mistake. But the, that's, that's the one main thing is I don't think they're blowing enough air. And that can be demonstrated, and I didn't do it today, by just holding up a piece of paper and making that thing move. And it's, it's surprising how many times I can put up a piece of paper to a student and it doesn't move. I said, move it. I didn't work hard. 
until you get that, that air going. And I, th- I, th- I do think it's, a lot of it's that, is holding on. Tension is terrible for any, any, any player. Any vocalist, any piano player, they're going to get hurt. And, you know, when we were younger, and of course everybody's going to go, uh, you know, we didn't have computers. So your shoulders didn't get hurt. You said when we sat there, and, and I think this all goes back to we, we work like this. <laughs> yeah, right? Or you're right on your iPad or your, your, your computer, and your arms aren't being supported. And I think our shoulders are over. I mean, I have so many students say, oh, my shoulders hurt, and think, you're way too young to be having shoulders hurt, you know. So any kind of stretching stuff you can do um, and make them be physically active. Go for a walk. Think about your music and go for a walk. You don't have to run marathons. And, but it's also uh, the, the posture. I think the air and the posture are the two things that, that bug me the most. And sitting in these bad chairs, you know, like this. Can I jump? I want to jump in, if that's okay. Um, to add to what you're saying about good air and, and fear of failure, I think a lot of students um, have this feeling from the beginning that they can't miss notes. And playing the horn means we're going to miss notes. It's just part of what we do. It happens. And um, the, most, the most supportive environment for that, I think, from a young age, um, that perfection is not the goal, it's telling the story of the music. You know, mm-hmm. it's okay if you miss that note because you were you were going for it. it. Happens, and I think that helps to foster a little more freedom of air and a little more freedom of, of storytelling. Exactly. And exactly. you know, mm-hmm. but I I you know ask students you know about their high school band director and they'll say oh yeah they just you know get on you if you miss any notes I want well you know go ahead and miss it. Do the Dave Crable creative, non-caring, you know. Go ahead and try to miss it. Go ahead and miss it. And the more you think, I'm going to miss that note, all of a sudden, you don't miss it, you know. So it's the, the idea of just letting go and, and let it happen. Yeah. And we're all going to miss notes. You sit there and go, well, how the heck did that happen? It, it happens, you know. The best example was Grover Schultz, who played English horn in the Chicago Symphony and oboe. And I always think about this. When you miss something, you think, yep, Grover. We were sitting there playing period instruments. I was playing natural horn on some piece, and he was playing Baroque oboe, and playing away, and squawk came out of the oboe. And he looked at it, and he says, I don't understand. I put it in straight, and it came out crooked. And that's sort of what happens. You know, you think you put it in straight and something happened. It happens. And Mr. Herseth used to say, if I miss a note, everybody's going to know I miss it. I'm just not going to approach something like that. I'm just going to go for it. And, you know, I can say, sitting in front of him for 20 years, I will say, I don't remember if he missed anything because it was probably the way he missed it. It didn't make any difference. It was the music that he was making, and if something nicked, it didn't 
I don't remember. It was the way he was, he was approaching the music and he was always in it, always in the music. And that's what I think we can help ourselves is if you're sitting in an or, in a chamber music piece or with piano or with orchestra, you have to know everybody else's part. So you know how your part fits in. And I think that's where people don't understand music as much. Okay, well, uh, we have time for one more question, Rachel. Um, I would say, that's a hard question, because they're all different. They all have different personalities, but I think that's okay. Letting their own personality come out in their playing, I, didn't, I wouldn't want anybody trying to, to, to copy anybody else. You have to be you, have your own sound. This is something that I was speaking with someone the other day that I think that everybody has their own sound because of the way they talk as youngsters. I need another DM student <laughs> to do my research because I'm not going to do it. But I feel, and, and, and Professor Faust, you can help me out with this one, I think everybody has their own voice and it's how they let go and sing with it. And that's where successful people what what they're doing and the students. They're not trying to make be a copy of somebody else. You can take their ideas, you know, interpretation, but it still has to be your own and I think you have to own it and that's when you're successful. Um, but the idea of tone color, I think it comes from when you started speaking as a little kid and their, your face structure and the size of your tongue and everything, everything else. And I think trying to create something that's not natural doesn't work. Doesn't work because it's not them, you know. But I think the basic thing that I always say to my students is, I want you to become your best teacher. So that's my primary goal when I'm graduating anybody. I want them to become their own best teacher so they can solve their problems. So in every lesson, I don't know how many times I asked Jenna, well, what'd you do? Mm -hmm. What's different? Did you hear what was different? Because they have to solve it. And, and that comes from not only from teaching, uh, but also um, Don Green said, he, his respect for musicians went way up when he realized what we had to do, that you saw your teacher one hour a week, and then you had to go figure it out. He said, you know, I'm you know, the Olympic diving coach, one of the coaches, uh, for all these extremely talented divers in the United States, right? And they have three coaches, and they have, you know, psychiatrists, and I'm the, you know, all of these different people around there tell them, no, they'll point your toe and, and take a little bit smaller step. And he says, and what do they do when we walk out of the, the pool area? They're doing cannonballs. 
They're not practicing. They're, doing, they're fooling around. And what do musicians do? You get your instruction for one hour, and then you have to go down. So he said, I was so impressed when I realized what musicians really have to do on their own. So they have to be their own teacher. So that's my main goal is to make sure you know how to fix something if you, you know, if something goes astray and you can think, okay, let's take a step back and let's go backwards a little bit. And sometimes that means putting the horn down. You know, it's not going to kill you to take a couple days off for a week. You're not going to lose it. Sometimes you come back thinking, oh, I was just doing this and this and this is kind of weird. So taking a little break, I think that's it's not bad. It's just choosing when to do it. You know, you're not going to take a break a whole week if you have to play, I don't know, conscious stroke or something the next day. No, you're not going to do that. But, but it's, it's choosing when. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. You're Wonderful welcome. insights into teaching. And thank you to all of you for your questions. Thank you.